This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's a place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time. We have a very interesting guest here today who is going to help us out very explicitly in our everyday lives. And he's also going to tell us a little bit about the big picture of things we're hearing about so much, so often, so every day in the news and the political spectrum in terms of people handling themselves in respectful, disciplined, thoughtful manners. And his name is Doug Knoll. Thank you very much for joining us, Doug. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be here. This is going to be fun. Yeah, Doug is a deep guy. He's a mediator. He's a JD. He's a lawyer, and he's been a trained mediator for years. All kinds of, uh, uh, you know, uh, specific high, high degree credentials. And we'll be back and talk about that in just a second. First of all, a brief roll from our sponsors. You listeners already know how much we love the reality of data here at CBJ, and today we welcome our clinical friend and sponsor partner, Direct Health Access Laboratory. With over 3 million studies, they're deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges. They provide a global service with a molecular focus. Stay tuned for more in just a minute. And then we're also happy to welcome on our group, uh, the Barry Robinson Center, the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center, right in beautiful downtown Norfolk here. And you all appreciate the detailed improvements of mind care. And today, we're really interested in the complexity of adolescent treatment failure nationally and internationally. You know, people are uh, very frequently placed into short-term psychiatric care facilities, uh, thrown a bunch of medicine and back out in the street with no real opportunity to pull themselves together. And we're pleased to be working with James Berry Robinson Center. And uh, what they do is they do family, they do interpersonal, they have a number of specific tracks going on, including uh, substance abuse recovery. So they're very comprehensive and more about them later. We really appreciate them coming on board. So let me tell you a little bit about... Uh, Mr. Knoll, Dr. Uh, not Dr. Knoll, but he's, he's, he's a professor. He is a doctor. You're a JD. I am. So, yeah. I am. But you know, in the law, we're, we're not as pretentious as everybody else. So yeah, right. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, I have, two ma- I have a master's degree and a, and a law degree. So That's fantastic. So he's a successful trial lawyer turned mediator for, get this, 35 years. Nall gives you the uh, secrets to calming an angry person of any age while remaining centered and calm. Is there anybody here that's not interested in that topic? Give me a break. Uh, His book guides readers on how to keep your composure during a very heated argument and to withstand insults, provocations, and disrespect from others without losing your cool. In a world more politically divided than ever, his book, De-Escalate, provides a simple, surefire way to communicate with others respectfully and productively, despite how tense a situation may be or become. So what he does, very interesting, I'm just saying a couple of other things about him, skipping over, he's done so many things, but he's a teacher, a trainer, 
highly experienced mediator, a co-founder of the Prison of Peace Project. He's worked with uh, inmates in prisons, applied deep empathetic listening skills, leadership skills, and problem-solving skills to reduce violence in prison communities. So he's been out, as they say, on the street without any uh reservation whatsoever he's a very experienced guy thank you so much again doug for joining us tell us a little bit about what's going on with you right now what what your current project is what your mission is at this moment please um the bulk of my time today is spent in the prison project which i can talk about in a moment uh and we have expanded the project dramatically this year from three prisons to nine prisons in california essentially what we're doing is training murderers to be peacemakers mm. and that has been the laboratory for the last seven years that i've used to refine the skills that I've written about in my latest book. And in fact, I have had so many inmates coming up to me over the years and saying, if I had learned these skills 20 years ago, I wouldn't be in prison right now. And even my 50-watt dim light bulb of a brain figures out after a while <laughs> that maybe there, are, there might be a book in here somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I yeah. wrote the book about. So, it's, so I'm working on that. In addition, I'm doing a lot of teaching and training. I teach at the graduate level, both law and, uh, and in basic conflict resolution. I'm adjunct at Pepperdine University, and uh, I'll be teaching a, a two-and-a-half-day workshop in, in Nashville for Pepperdine uh, at Lipscomb University in October. I just got back from Toronto where I was at a two-and-a-half-day co- training conference teaching these skills. And so I teach, I teach all the way from middle school teachers to faith communities to lawyers and mediators and judges who are very interested in how we go about de-escalating emotional people and then wanting to understand the neuroscience of why does this work the way that it does and why is that all the other techniques that people have come up with don't work as well what does the neuroscience tell us about how our brains process peace and conflict so i'm spending a lot of time of course in my research studies studying what the neuroscientists are telling us about um, you know cognition perception emotion and and motivation which is all the basic fundamentals of what go into whether people fight or sing or make love. And so that's kind of a nutshell of the stuff that I'm doing. And on the side, uh, when I don't have anything better to do, I play jazz violin. Oh, you do. (laughs) So interesting. And you probably live in Malibu. (laughs) No, I don't. Actually, I live in a place even more beautiful than Malibu. I live about four miles, four hours north of Malibu, but I live just south of Yosemite National Park, right at the high foothills of the the central Sierra Nevada. So I live halfway. When Yosemite and Kings Canyon National Parks in California. I know that very well. My grandkids go to school at one at a school right near Pepperdine, so oh, okay. they're they're right over there, and we've uh, had some really fun times at uh, right at, at at Pepperdine. So moving on, I mean the there is so much to talk about with a guy like you. It's hard to figure out exactly where to start, but I think the thing that would really catch everybody's interest is how do you take somebody who is on automatic, firing all the time, who has a no other resources in their mind or in their human experience other than drawing a gun and shooting it, metaphorically speaking. They are riddled with anger. They're, as we know, internally very vulnerable, and very frequently they may even be depressed, so whatever they say doesn't make any difference anyway to, uh, to, to them, certainly. So, how do you conceptualize going into a situation like that 
And what could you tell us about how we can better effectively approach a situation like that? All right. What the neuroscience teaches us, and specifically this comes from a 2007 study by Matthew Lieberman, who is a neuroscientist at UCLA, and his study is called Putting Feeling into Words. Uh, and you can find it, if you Google Lieberman putting feeling into words, you'll find the study, it's out there. Uh, and what, it's a technique that I stumbled onto in a mediation in 2004 and then read Lieberman's study in 2007 and understood why what I did work so well. And it boils down, as I boiled it down and figured out how to teach this, it boils down to three simple steps. The first thing you do when you're conf confronted with somebody who's extremely angry, a two-year-old having a tantrum, or a 90-year-old who's just really uncomfortable at being elderly. It doesn't matter who the person is. It, the human brains all respond the same way. Step number one, ignore the words. The moment you start paying attention to the words, you're going to lose it because the words are going to trigger you. So ignore them. They have no meaning for the next 90 seconds. Step number two, guess at the emotional experience that the speaker is having in the moment. You will never be wrong. I say guess, we all have an innate ability to determine what other people are feeling, but I say guess because people don't believe they can actually read emotional data fields when we're actually quite good at it. So guess at it. Guess at what you think they're feeling. And then the third step, using very simple you statements. Tell them what they're feeling. You are angry. You are frustrated. You are sad. You're feeling a lot of grief. You feel disrespected. You feel unloved. You feel completely abandoned, as if there is nobody else in the universe for you. You do that, and you keep repeating that process, those three steps, until you get four autonomic responses that are very visible. Response number one is a verbal response, such as an uh-huh or a yeah or exactly. Totally unconscious, totally autonomic. Number two, you're going to get a nodding of the head affirmatively up and down, totally unconscious. Indicator number three is a dropping of the shoulders, and indicator number four is a big sigh of relief. All four of these indicators are completely unconscious. They're completely automatic, automatic and autonomic, um, and they're the brain's response to this being processed properly in the brain. And when you get those responses, you stop because you've de-escalated. Or you go for 90 seconds, and if at the end of 90 seconds, you, the person still hasn't calmed down, you back off and try again later. Uh, something's going on, and it right now may not be just exactly the right time. These techniques have been refined, and as I said, maximum security prisons, we have trained murderers how to use these techniques to stop gang fights, stop homicides, stop fights, stop violence, arguments of all kinds in some of the most violent places in the world. And the reason that we teach this is because we had to teach these inmates something that would work the first time, every time, without failure. Human lives are at stake. It had to be absolutely bomb-proof. And in fact, this technique is bomb-proof mm -hmm. if you follow those three simple steps. You will be amazed at what will happen when you do it. It sounds so simple and in many ways counterintuitive to ignore the words and pay attention to the emotions. But when you do this, it is, a, it is fundamentally transformative. Fundamentally transformative. Unbelievable. So you've seen this happen a few times. <laughs> do, do you do you ask them do you ask them doug to actually practice i mean the issue then the next thing is first of all how does a person 
um, put these these uh, steps into their bones? How do they actually Good. do that on the scene? So what I teach is I say, first of all, do not use this on your spouse right away. Uh, um, what you want to do is practice this in socially very safe, low-risk environments. So what, what I tell people is for the first week, if you, if, you, if you frequent a Starbucks, for example, in the morning you're getting your Starbucks coffee, um, affect label, this is called affect labeling, affect label the barista. Say, oh, you look really happy this morning. And watch what happens. And what you will see will be unbelievable. They will open up to you and smile and laugh and giggle and say, yeah, I am. Thank you so much. You know, you just nailed it. Um, stick with really low-risk situations. People that you don't know are very casual so that you can get comfortable with the technique. But beware, and I will say this mostly for the women out there, be very careful using this on men who are not are strangers because they will feel so deeply hurt they will start hitting on you. And all I tell all my females, all my young women students in my graduate classes, I say, be very careful in the way that you use this and be discerning because you are creating an instant, deep, empathic connection that most people have never experienced before. And it feels really good. And they really like it and they want more. And so okay, they, so you well, said something. For more. Oh, I think it's a fantastic. So you said it. And honestly, over the uh, airwaves, it didn't quite come through. You said heard, that they would be heard. That's it correct. came through a little bit like hurt. Heard. And as you clarified it, you really made it a good point because what does anyone want to have happen to them but actually be emotionally understood by another person to have that connection? Correct. And so this other person is saying, look, I'm connected with you. I understand you. I get you. Uh, and, and, and so what you're saying is practice in innocence. Don't practice in full combat to start off. That's right. And, and you didn't say this, I'm guessing, and I want your feedback on this. Don't practice with your wife because it will be uh, perceived as artificial on some level because you really know her or him or whatever, and you're saying it in a way that uh, would be considered uh, artifice, perhaps. Until it becomes a natural part of your being, which takes about two weeks. Then, you, then you'll try it on your wife or your husband, and it'll be a throwaway. You'll just throw, make a throwaway comment, oh, you are, and with nothing else, as part of your ordinary conversation, and watch for the changes. And, and sometimes people will say, you're damn right, I'm angry. Yeah, you, uh, of course I am. Can't you tell? I said, and you just keep with them. You say, so you're really frustrated. You're really angry. You never react to their words because you're ignoring their words. You're only paying attention to their emotions, no matter what they say. Um, yeah, you start off with really light stuff, easy situations, just so you can test yourself that you know it's going to work for you. And then, and then you can take on more difficult situations. Like, it's like learning how to walk or learning how to ride a bike. You know, we don't, we don't take off on the, on the expert ski runs on the first day of skiing, right? We've got to right, practice right. a little we got to practice a little bit, so, but, but it doesn't take long. And what's really going on here and what Lieberman shows us in his scanning studies is that we are literally loaning our prefrontal cortex to the emotional person because when the emotional centers of the brain become, become uh, activated through some sort of outside stimulus or, or an activation of memory or both, as we know, the prefrontal cortex essentially shuts down because the purpose of emotions in the brain is to make us pay attention to our environment and take action. So when the amount, when emotions get, when the emotions, the affect in our brain, the affect regions of the brain become 
stimulated and activated, the prefrontal cortex really, really shuts down. And so people are really fundamentally, physically, biologically unable to process that emotional experience. There's very little cognition that's going on. What we do when we affect label is we loan them our prefrontal cortex. We're helping them process that emotional experience. And as we do that, and as Lieberman's study shows, the emotional centers of the brain immediately quiet and the prefrontal cortex comes back online and they can start processing and problem solving. I mean, almost instantly. It's amazing. So now some of my audience may not get what you said. I think you said it so articulately and so well to those of us who are neuroscientifically, uh, you know, thinking already about prefrontal cortex. and, and So, so let me restate it in a, 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 a simpler way. One of the things that we have, understand that emotions are, are, have two components to them. Uh, biological, physiological component. That's, part of, that's the physical things that happen in the brain with neurohormones and neurons firing. The other part is cognitive. We have to process what's going on in the brain in a, in a cognitive sense so we can call a feeling that we have anger. So that requires us over a period of time in life to build a database that relates what we experience in the brain or in our physical bodies with things that we call emotions. This is called emotional categorization. What happens when we get into conflict is that we get into a condition, big words, we get into a condition called alexithemia, which is nothing more than the ability, the inability to recognize and state the emotional experience we're having in the moment. We're basically emotionally blind. So when we become emotionally blind, all we can do is react. We can no longer make choices. We can no longer communicate. We can no longer look at cause and effect and try to determine why we're feeling the way we are. We become blind and reactive. What happens when we listen in the way that I've, determined, I've discovered and now teach and preach and write about is that as the listener, we are allowing the speaker to process, to think about, and to understand his emo- or her emotional experience in the moment. And as we're basically loaning them our brain to do that work, they calm down because now all of a sudden they can figure it out. And, well, you're and saying it's such a- I was going to say, for those who are non-neuroscientists and don't want to read this study, trust me, the study is out there. The science is there behind this as to why it works. Well, I took big notes. Sorry to interrupt you there. I mean, That's I took okay. big notes on I'm going to have it in the show notes. And to use uh, a little more on our lexicon side, it's really self-observation. You know, to, to make it even more simple, the person is, loses the ability to be self-observant. That's correct. So they're like, uh, whatever it is, the, their vilification is totally okay because they're down to reptilian thinking. They're there not you go. in. There you go. They're not having yeah. systems two processing. They're down systems yeah. one. Eat pure or be system eaten. one. Pure system one. Pure autonomic, reactive, reflect, uh, non-reflective thinking, and and it's just whatever their habitual bottom line fundamental reaction is what it is there's zero emotional intelligence and so by epic labeling we interfere with that default process we're not really engaging in their system two thinking we're it's still system one and we're still working at a at a system one unconscious level but somehow and even lieberman isn't quite sure what the what the process is somehow when we do this we re-engage the prefrontal cortex the thinking part of the brain that allows for the processing to be happening there's a lot more research that has to be done here but at least we know what the fundamental mechanisms yeah well they're stepping back i mean they're stepping back from themselves even in milliseconds that's right because they're disentangled from the situation that's right there's a there's a i mean this is way too deep but i mean there's a there's a momentary transcendence 
Uh, I want to talk take, about that. <laughs> that takes them out of who they are for a moment, and they go for even milliseconds into the big picture of what's actually happening. Please go into it. Sounds I, interesting. I think that uh, I, I'm smiling because there's another really cool thing that happens when you do this. And this is more for the listener's benefit. So if you are using this skill on somebody else, here's another benefit that's going to come from you. When you ignore the words, focus on the emotions, and only speak back the emotions, you move into a transcendent state of egolessness. And it is a spiritual experience where you feel literally feel one with the universe and one with the speaker. It is very, very strange when you first experience it, but it is an amazing personal experience that is life-changing. And every single person who has ever used this technique has that experience. And for those of you who have listened or read Eckhart Tolle and his book about the power of now, he talks about the power of now, but he never tells us how to get there. This is an experience that will get you where you're in the present moment. There's no past. There's no future. It's just now. You're, I think where the science is on this, if, for the scientifically minded, is I think we're using, I think what we're doing is at this level, we're using the, the dorsal lateral, yeah, the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex rather than the, 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 the uh, uh, central medial prefrontal cortex, medial, which is right? the, lower, yeah. the, lower, the lower ego self. It's mm -hmm. a higher self, and it's just an amazing, amazing experience that we have. So, um, yeah, so the, it's well, a transcendent experience for both the listener and the speaker. It's incredible. And that's a, that's a very big leap, Doug. You just took us from street fighting to spiritual transcendence well, in milliseconds. I mean, that's right. Well, I'm a secondary black belt and a Tai Chi master, so you would expect that of me. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. It's a good thing. And that is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, really beautiful when you think about it because actually it's a thing that we should all practice doing just as a – um, we should do it on a, on a routine as a regular basis just to practice it because it's a, it's a connectivity with other people that's, that's, right. that's, that's uh, productive and positive. It's a beautiful experience. And so, and so what happens is once you start practicing this, it becomes a daily spiritual practice and you just want to do it all the time. I mean, I was, I can't, I was flew back from Toronto on, uh, on, on Saturday and I just, wherever I went, I was just affect labeling people just to get mm -hmm. that connection, to feel that high of that transcendent moment, you know? And it was just kind of amazing all day long, walking through the airports. Hi, you're really happy right now. Hi, oh, you look a little frustrated, you know? I mean, it was amazing. Well, I'm telling you, that is so interesting. Now, I do have a question I'm going to ask you because this is a beautiful moment. I don't want to throw any cold water on it, but I think one of the things that's always so interesting about talking to a maven like yourself is how do we take some of this into the next level? For example, what I'm going to ask you in a moment after a quick break is what happens when it doesn't work? You told us a little bit, but what would be the problems that you would see that you had to wrestle with to come up where you're like your, your face is in it, you're doing everything right, and something isn't working? What is there a fallback position? Let's talk about that and what to do as they say, next. We'll be back in just a moment. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations, may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, 
should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression on every level for families, including military families internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living. How do we know we refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing? So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com forward slash core. Well, CBJ listeners, isn't this the most interesting conversation? I mean, it's a feeling we haven't done. He, 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 I'm telling you, as you know, you've listened. Doug hasn't done this on me, but you have a feeling of being connected with this guy. He hasn't done it on you out there in Possum Hollow, but you feel like you're connected with a guy like this because he's reaching out in a very meaningful way, in a very constructive way. So, Doug, back to that question. So, what do you do? How did you handle it when you were first coming along? How did you take it to that next level where, where something didn't quite work out and you had to rethink it or something in some way to say, okay, this is my fallback position? So, first of all, I learned from the hard way. <laughs> I learned the hard way that there are two things that you don't do when you do this. The first is you don't use I statements. So, you would never say, what I think you're feeling is X. Never, ever use I statements. That's number one. Number two, never ask a question. Oh, are you angry? I learned from hard experience that all you do is get huge pushback and more anger when you use an I statement or when you ask a question. You have to have the courage to be vulnerable and just put yourself out there and say, oh, are you angry? So what it takes is it takes, it takes, it takes us to be a little bit counterintuitive about social norms and being willing to open ourselves up to be vulnerable to other people. That takes some courage. Now, sometimes you get pushback. Sometimes people will say, who the heck are you, my psychotherapist? Or somebody will say, I don't want you to use that psychobabble crap on me. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, they'll give you kind of pushback like that. I'm cool with that. All that means is I wasn't subtle. My timing was a little off. Back off, come back and try it again in 15 minutes. I work in deep, con as a professional mediator, people call me in to help them work through really deep and intractable conflicts. And uh, so I'm dealing with people in high conflict every day, and I'm dealing with people who are very emotional every day. And I know that 
when I affect label, every now and then, somebody's going to give me a little pushback because I wasn't subtle enough. No problem. I just come back. I'll let it go for 10 minutes, and I'll come back again and try it again. And I'll just keep working at it and finding I'll, I'll keep it simpler and simpler and simpler until it's a simple little throwaway comment, and eventually I'll get it. And then I'm I know gonna- Pardon me, pardon me, I interrupt you. I'm going to just say one point quick of, uh, uh, quick point of clarification, and that is, folks, some of you may not be uh, familiar with the term affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, okay? Affect, uh, when he's talking about affect, he's talking about recognition, identification of a feeling state of that other person. So, uh, and they say he's calling it affect recognition, and uh, so I think another point, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, Doug, I appreciate your feedback, but it sounds like uh, an I statement is obviously going to be a defensive statement because you're correct. taking position. That's of, correct. This is who I am. I'm not talking about who you are, Brian. That's right. Exactly correct, Chuck. What I've learned is that when people use I statements and listing, they are self-soothing their own anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so they're using it, as you just pointed out, as a defensive mechanism for themselves. They're really not being present for the speaker. They're being present to protect themselves. They're being self-protective. So there's a certain amount of courage that's required here because you have to kind of walk away from your own ego and your own self-protection and be totally present for the other person. The only way that you can demonstrate that you truly understand them is by reflecting back what their experience is in a very direct way. That, that way they know that you know what they're experiencing. If you tell them, I know what you're experiencing, you're not telling them what they're experiencing. You're telling them that you know what they're experiencing. So you have to say, you are angry, you are frustrated, whatever. Making that short declarative statement. See, that is an excellent point of clarification. That is really fantastic. And the other one, never ask a question, what's going on there? Well, the person, and point of clarification on this, the person who's asking a question is, in fact, seeking to control and is actually putting that other person in a vulnerable, I want something from you. I'm not giving you something. I want to take something from you. And if a person is upset already, why would they want to give something like an answer on anything is like a, it's a giving taking situation i think exactly correct you need to come teach with me that's that's one of the best ways i've ever heard heard it described and I'll, for those who need another way of describing it what we teach is we i say all right the listener has got a railroad track you've got a railroad track you never want to take their train on their railroad track and put it on your railroad track so when you ask a question it's now becomes your agenda as you just said you're taking their train and putting it on your track It'll never work. You must keep their train on their track, and you must stay with them on their train and not put it on your track. That's why you don't ask questions and don't use I statements. I mean, it really is a very spiritual activity. I mean, it's a very street-level spiritual activity. It's spirituality in practice, transcendence, very, very cool. This is And, and grounded in deep neuroscience. That's the other cool thing. We know why this works. There's no mysticism here. This is hard science. It's amazing because really, oh. you're, and the reptilian brain is not the prefrontal cortical brain. The no, it's not. brain is down there eating, eating toads. And right. uh, the prefrontal cortex is, I don't really think toads taste that well, you know? Right, exactly. Well, I've got another question to ask here. This is so interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and talk. And I, what I really find so pleasant about these opportunities is, is really learning from an individual like you who's had so much experience with 
the reality of the application. It, it really is encouraging. And, and, you know, if my colleagues who I work with uh, hear me doing this, they'll now know why. Well, let me let, think about this. Think about physicians and healthcare providers who have to deal with angry, upset patients every day. Imagine, imagine what would it be like for a physician or for a nurse to be able to ethically label the patient, calm them down in 90 seconds and get right to the problem, rather than wrestling with their emotions for 20 minutes or however long the, 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 the payers allow you to meet with a patient these days, rather than wrestling with their emotions, getting in there with their emotions, getting down and dirty, reflecting them back and calming them down and then getting the pr productive problem solving so the patient can make better choices. Powerful for doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers and therapists. I've trained up many, many therapists in this technique. They're blown away by it. Okay, now in direct response to that very interesting comment <laughs> is this next question. So all of us are sort of a little bit on the uh, emotionally automatic, I've got to fix that, okay? So there's, there's one thing that I think so many of us do. I've done it myself, uh, of, of course. You, you learn the hard way. When it doesn't work. But the next issue is, okay, I've made the observation. And then the next thing is looking for some kind of suggestion to solution. Right. Can Problem solving. About that, please. Okay. So first of all, we should never problem solve until we de-escalate. And I don't care what the, what the context is, whether it's in my context of helping people solve deep problems where there's deep conflict, or you're in a therapeutic situation, or you're in a, in a disciplinary situation with a coworker or in school, never ever try to problem solve until you've got people de-escalated. Because as long as they're emotional, they can't process the problem solving aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Now when you move into problem solving, there's a whole range of, of possibilities in terms of how you go about problem solving. And one of the easiest things to do is simply ask a person, what should we do about this? What do you think we ought to do about this? And get them to do the problem solving instead of you offering up advice. There's a whole process that we teach around, that I teach around how to give advice without ever giving advice. And basically allow people to come up with their own solutions and build in accountability uh, and, and work with them. And of course, as they're working through the problem, they're going to become re-escalated. We ethic label them or calm them down, de-escalate them back down, get them back into problem-solving mode, and, and work, to a, work to a place where, at least in my work, we, come to, we try to come to written agreements that are very specific about who, what, when, where, how, and why with accountability. What happens if this doesn't work? What do we do then? Mm. And, and that's how we work through it. Now, in, again, in my stuff, when I'm working in conflict, I have a whole range of processes that I can use as a mediator to help people solve their problems. And the nature of the problem defines which tools I'm going to pull out of the toolbox, the same as in any other profession. But I'm not going to even attempt to do that until I've got people calmed down. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Now, Doug has written another book, folks. This is just the beginning of the conversation. And I hope everybody here gets a chance to read the books. I mean, you know, the issue would be, first of all, Everybody that's listening to this needs the de-escalate book right now because if you assimilate that and put it together, it's the, the applications are so interesting. But he's got another book out called Elusive Peace. And this is taking it from the street level with inmates in prison to the global stage. So, Doug, could you tell us about the subtitle of that book and what the mission on that particular writing is all about? Right. Elusive Peace was my third book. It was published in uh, 2000, 
2012, I think, 2013 by uh, Prometheus. And what I got interested in as a mediator was why international conflict mediation was failing so much. I mean, if, if, if professional mediators like myself had a success rate of 18%, uh, which is what the Gulf Cooperative Council has in its mediations, and that's the highest of all the international organizations, the UN has a 6% success rate, we'd be out of business. So why is, is, is it really the nature of the conflicts are that difficult that so the success rate is so low? And I, I did an analysis and basically concluded that the problem is that the, that the International Diplomatic Committee is using 17th century technologies to solve 21st century problems. And so I talk about affect labeling and I talk about problem solving and I demonstrate how if you start applying some of these findings we're learning in neuroscience about how people process peace and, and conflict, no matter where they are in the world, that international diplomats could have a much higher success rate. Um, and that's what the book is really all about. And one of the more interesting things in the book is where I, I have a whole chapter on how do you meet, mediate evil? What do you do? Oh, with, my God. What do you do when you're confronted with people who have committed genocide and, you, and they're sitting there and you've somehow gotten them to the table and they're going to be in a, a discussion around peace talks with a, a government or an opposition group? How do you even begin to approach something like that as a media? And I talk about it. And there are approaches you use and things that you talk about and, and how you, how you set, set the table up so that, so that you can have a productive conversation about what this is all about. Mm. Um, so... That's what Elusive Peace was all about. And, and it was sort of an early, early take. And then Deescalate, which is coming out right now, it's just being released right now, is my current thinking about how we apply these techniques on a day-to-day -day basis in our everyday lives. So you can see the trajectory of my thinking over the years at, through these books. But if you're interested in Elusive Peace has as much applicability today as it did uh, when, it, when it came out. And if you're really interested in understanding more about the problems of international conflict mediation, why for example, is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict unresolved? Why is the Syrian crisis so difficult? Why is all there's this upheaval in Venezuela and in, um, in Africa? Elusive Peace will give you the answers to that and from the perspective of a professional mediator who looked at these conflicts um, with the eye towards what would it take to get these things solved. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, thinking fast and thinking slow. You have Kahneman, of course. You know, it's so close. I mean, it has, but you're, you, you have a uh, much more, in a way, I mean, these things are difficult, but you have an entertaining presentation here because it's so uh, enlightening and so refreshing and has such a positive ring and such a broad application. Well, what I, I like to tell people is that I'll do all the hard work. I'll read, you know, Daniel Kahneman jokes and he says, people say, oh, I've got your book. And he said, yeah, but how, have you read it? I mean, it was 830 pages of very dense writing. It's deep. It's deep. No question about it. And, and so most people will get it and they won't read it. What I do is I actually read this stuff, but I read this material with the idea of how can I apply this tomorrow? What's in here that I can apply tomorrow in my peacemaking and mediation practice? And then how can I teach this to my students? How can I pass this knowledge on? And ground them in the academic knowledge, but also ground them in the practice of it so that they know that what they're doing is grounded in the science and will work first time every time. Um, an another book that has just come out that I really strongly recommend if people are really interested in the hard stuff is uh, Robert Sapolsky's Behave. Sapolsky is a neurobiologist at Stanford. I love the guy. He's brilliant. And his book is the best treatise so far on the neurobiology of human behavior, both good and bad, from the synapse all the way to evolutionary biology. 
And ultimately, he concludes, what you do today is really influenced by what happened 10 million years ago. Really, really. Oh, I got to read that. Really I, I love the guy myself. I yeah, mean, he's fantastic. So that, that's definitely a must read. No question about it. That's a must read. So, but, but if you take these books, now I take these books as a teacher and as a trainer as a practitioner, so I'm a scholar practitioner, and I'm looking at, all right, what's the information in here that, what, that I can use tomorrow? How do I take this stuff and turn it into something that'll work? And that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And you've done it so well. I mean, well, just this short period of time here. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't imagine the person who's listening to this is just like, oh my gosh, I've got to go out and do this. I've got to stop on the way, stop at Starbucks and run it by a barista. You know, that's I'm, right. Check it out. <laughs> that's what I tell people. I say, don't rely on the great Doug Noel for this. Go out and test it yourself. The whole world is a, is a lab out there, and you've got all these millions of lab rats. Go test it on the lab rats and see for yourself. Don't trust me. Don't take my word for it. And then get excited and go read Sapolsky. That's oh right. <laughs> or read my book first. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. That's why and we're going to read Sapolsky. If you really want the deep stuff, go, go read Sapolsky and Kahneman. Well, you ha- that, that, they are going to be deep. I mean, you're have, you have such a refreshingly practical way. I mean, really, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about a, a, uh, an experience I have with a, a local um, residential care facility that would just, they could use this with children and adolescents. Absolutely. They could just take all the staff, and say, look, guys, this is what we do, and this is where we're going to go with it. That's right. There, yeah, and it works. this works so amazingly well with children. And I argue that this is critical to use with two- to four-year-olds because during that period of time, there's a reason why they're called the terrible twos because what's happening is the emotional centers of the brain at two to four years old are now maturing. And children have to go through every single conceivable emotional experience in that two-year period for the brain to experience the emotion. And for the brain cells to connect in exactly the right ways so they become proper emotional beings. Well, what do we do during that period? For little boys especially, Chuck, I'm sure it was the same for you. But for me, it was, I skinned my knee. My dad says, don't don't be a sissy. Suck it up. Be a man. So what am I being told at two years old? I'm being told that emotions are bad. Emotions are horrible. They should be repressed. I shouldn't have any feelings. I got to suck it up and be tough. Mm -hmm. And now what happens to the poor kid at 15 years old when he starts getting interested in girls? And he's been emotionally repressing himself for the last 12 or 13 years. Yeah. That's a train wreck wait, waiting to happen. And you wonder why the divorce rates are so high. I say it goes all the way back to how we emotionally abuse our children when, when we invalidate them at two years old. So every parent should know this skill and use it on their children. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing that occurs to me, and this is putting my psychoanalytic hat on for just a moment, but the other thing that happens when that father is rebuking that boy that way what individuals do as they grow up is they turn the passive experience into active uh, mastery by running it on everybody else. That's right. That's exactly correct. And we see that uh, domestic violence, for example, um, is largely due to the fact that men had suffered emotional trauma as children and they're simply acting it out because they have no other way to be. They're, you know, they're alexithemic and they, have, they just have never developed the emotional complexity necessary to navigate a complex emotional situation that a relationship requires. They have only one tool. That's right, <laughs> violence. Yeah. And that's what we see in prison too. That's why, the, that's why so many inmates are attracted to our project is because we're showing them that you have choices and you can learn ways of being other than through violence. And we have hundreds of people waiting to get into our training in the prisons that we're working in. So you train, so you train in the prisons. Uh, do you actually, and you train, you uh, work at, 
other colleges and so on. You actually have a course, or what? Uh, do you, what yeah, I have. I, I teach. I try to make this as as accessible as possible at the graduate level at Pepperdine. I teach uh, a, a, two classes: one, the psychology of conflict communication, where we go into all of this stuff, and then I teach another class called decision making, which is the second part. So it's pro it's de-escalation and problem solving. I also teach for Pepperdine a two and a half day workshop. I do my own workshops in the prison system. We are we train inmates, primarily lifers, how to be peacemakers and mediators, and then we train them to be trainers so that it becomes sustainable and then they can teach other inmates the stuff that we teach them. And then I have an online workshop that people can get that teaches all these skills for those who just want to be able to do it on their tablet at home. So and that people, online right. workshop is, is, is a coursework where you go through right. coursework. And That's right. There's, there's eight, seven, eight video, eight video lectures plus a couple of bonus videos and a 50-page workbook. And uh, you work through the exercises. And I always tell people, do this with a trusted friend, maybe not your spouse. Uh, depends on your relationship. But do it with a trusted friend. Take a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon and go through the course. And in four hours, you'll get, you'll get the gist of what you need to know in order to be able to practice this efficiently and effect effectively. And for the people, for people who are interested in that, the way you get to the course is you go to dougnoll.com, which is my website. Click on the banner, go to the free book, buy the, get the free book, you'll be, and then you'll be given the offer to, to the video course if you'd like that. T totally your choice, of course. Point of clarification, because I was just going to ask you about your website. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not Doug Knoll, it's Douglas Knoll. It could be Douglas Knoll or Doug Knoll. I've got oh, all the URLs. Doug Knoll, okay. Yeah. Doug Knoll, I, Douglas I shouldn't Knoll. have corrected you on your own website. <laughs> not a problem. Douglas Knoll, N-O-L-L, Doug Knoll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L. -L. It doesn't matter. It will take you there. There's a banner that says about the book. Click on the banner. It'll take you to a page. If you want the book, just pay for the shipping. We're, we've got, I've got a benefactor who's buying the book. He wants millions of people to have this book. He's buying the book for anybody who wants it for free. All you got to do is pay for the shipping. And then you'll go to, you'll be taken to a page where if you want to get the video course, totally no obligation. If you want the, if you want the video course, you can buy it there. And then the, the book will come out, be delivered as soon as Amazon gets it, which will be in another week or two. That is fantastic. I mean, so... We're so grateful for, for you taking the time, and there, there's so many positive things that come out of this conversation. Well, thank you, Chuck. You're, you're really creating an enormously productive, positive wave out there that we all, as scurrying around human beings on the face of the earth, bumping into each other, having conflicts, trying to figure out how we can control others, forgetting that we need to control ourselves. Well, here's the thing that I think is really cool about this is that I can't do this on my own, but I can enlist the help of every person who's interested in having a better life, of stopping fights and arguments in their lives forever, if they want to do that, of bringing peace into their families, into their communities. Anybody who is interested in that can now become a participant in this movement, in this population, by learning these very simple skills and practicing them on a daily basis. And if, what we've learned in prison is if we can take out of a population of, say, 3,000 inmates, if we can train 30 men or women, men's prison or women's prison, in the skills, within a year they will completely change the culture of the prison. Is only, that right? Only 30. And I think that is true. It's all based on Axelrod's work back in 19, 1980s when he did some amazing computer simulations about this. But he demonstrated, and we've proven it in prison, that a very small population of, concerted, of, of doves can completely wipe out the hawks in about 10 generations. And he did all kinds of computer simulations around this. Very cool stuff. It's called, his book's called The Complexity of Cooperation.
I think in 1988. And you can get it. It's not out of print, but there are versions online PDF you can find if you Google it. Anyways, we went into the prisons wondering if that would happen. And sure enough, we found that if we taught less than 1% of the population how to be peacemakers, within a year's time, everything changed. Right now, I'll just give you an example. Right now, we're working in Corcoran, which is a, a major state prison in California. We're 100 feet from Charles Manson. And uh, my colleague just had a talk with the warden yesterday. And the first thing he asked her was, How, what are you guys doing that's resulting in the men want, not, not wanting to leave this prison? They want to stay until they finish your course. <laughs> what are you doing that's causing the correctional officers to say this place has completely changed in the last six months? That's, that's the kind of reaction we're getting because that's of the skills that we're teaching. Yeah. So this stuff works. It really works. Doug Knoll, this has been a remarkable conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I know our listeners just love it to death. And I see applications all over the place. I mean, anybody in the mental health community certainly should get it. But we, thank goodness, our listeners stretch across all over. We got, we're, have listeners in 90 countries. Wow. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. I mean, what yeah. you're talking about has a very broad global application. Absolutely. We appreciate your taking the time on to talk to us about it. And, uh, Hey, you're on our must listen. We have a <laughs> we have a uh, mindset page that covers all the individuals who are really talking about mindset. You're going to be highlighted there as well. So, Thanks, Chuck. Hey, we really appreciate you coming on board. Really, Great. Uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. My pleasure. And I hope people will really take heart to learn this stuff because we can change the world together with this material. It's amazing. I like the concept of together, Doug. It's really great. Thank you, my friend. Alrighty. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.